This morning we are going to begin our study of First Thessalonians, and I always like to start these uh, series out with just a little bit of background, and so this is uh, a sermon series uh, that we're going to cover First Thessalonians and then Second Thessalonians, and before each we're going to give a kind of an introductory uh, message and basically, I want to give you the who, what, when, where, and why. Um, it's important for us as believers to understand the context that any biblical author is writing into, uh, lest we cherry-pick a verse and try to apply it in a way that it was never meant to be applied. Um, I think of you know the verse in Philippians where I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, and you see it put on these posters of you know, uh, sports people trying to do some sporting event thing, right? And, and the context there is persecution, <laughs> right? I, I can endure all things for Christ. And so it's, it's important for us to understand why the book was written, who it was written to. Then we can take that information and help to apply it to our lives appropriately. And so these sermons are different than your traditional three-point kind of sermons with uh, just going through a passage of scripture and then an application and that kind of stuff. Um, this is a much more informational type sermon. So this is uh, my attempt to pretend to be a seminary professor, if you will, for the next 30 minutes or so, and to just give you some background on the book. And before we get into um, the one verse we're going to look at today, which is 1 Thessalonians 1.1, um, we need to start with the backstory of how this church got started. And thankfully, that was recorded in the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bible, you want to flip back, but I think we also have this that we can put up on the screen for you. Acts 17, 1 through 10. It says this, Now, when they had passed through Apophilus and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica. There, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So this is the backstory of how the church got started 
in Thessalonica, right? So Paul is on his missionary journey. He's, he's going through at least with Silas, probably with Timothy, although he's not specifically mentioned here. Um, this letter is written from the three of them that, that we're going to see in verse 1-1. And so they're on their way, and Paul is preaching the gospel. And, and as Paul would normally do, he would go into the synagogue and begin to preach in the synagogue first, right? The, the word reason there with them in the synagogue is he's explaining and expounding the scriptures with them, right? What we would call preaching, right? He's, he's taking the word of God and then trying to explain it to them so that they would understand why the Messiah would have to come and die. Because again, in a Jewish mind, when the Messiah comes, it's game over, right? When he comes, there's this hard shift, and we are now in charge, right? Because we're his people. And then when Jesus comes, claiming to be the Messiah, and then he dies, well, this creates a lot of problems for a Jewish person. But Paul is reasoning to them, explaining to them why it had to happen in the way in which that God had it happen. And so I want to look at the, the who, what, when, where, why, and that's really kind of the section headings if you're taking notes, um, for this, and then just kind of close with a few thoughts that we see from 1 Thessalonians 1.1. So first is who. Who is writing this letter? And we see both the sender and the receiver. Those are both of the who's that we need to understand the context of this letter in verse 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So we see from this, the who is three people. There are three people who are sending this letter. And there's some debate about, is this Paul writing this letter and he's just tagging on some people? Um, or is this a letter from all three of them? I tend to lean toward the fact that it's all three of them. And the reason is, unlike a lot of Paul's other letters, there's a lot of we's in this letter. There's only a couple of I's in this letter. And what I mean by that is when he's addressing the church, we say this, we say this, not I say this. And so again, that leans credence to the fact that this is kind of a mutual letter written between the three people that are listed here in verse 1. So most of us uh, probably know Paul. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has a, a confrontation. He was Saul, and, and Saul was persecuting the church. He has a, 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 an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that changes his life, so much so that it changes his name. He changes his name from Saul to Paul, and he begins to, instead of persecuting and killing Christians and, and persecuting the church, he becomes one of the biggest advocates for the gospel and for the church, and for the spread of the gospel, especially to the Gentiles. Paul's methodology was to start with the Jewish people, but to end with the Gentiles. He saw himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. Second, we see Sylvanius listed here, which might be a, an odd name for some of you. But this is Silas. This is, this is someone that um, is well known in Scripture, and in a Greek in the Greek text, 
he would have been called Silvanius, or however you want to say that. But, but it's, it's basically Silas. And, and Silas is a, is a Greek name which itself is kind of a transliteration of the Aramaic form of the name Saul. And so that may be why there's a little bit of distinction there, right? We don't want to have Paul and Saul writing this letter to you. Um, but Silvanius was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And you see that in Acts chapter 15, verse 22 and 32. And let me just warn you, I'm going to throw out a lot of scripture references this morning. Um, if you need them, just email me and I'll be happy to provide them for you later uh, if I go too fast. Um, the Jerusalem council had appointed him sometime previously to accompany Paul and Barnabas. Again, if you've ever read the books of, of Acts, you may remember that. And they delivered the decision to the body, uh, to the church at, of, of Antioch in Acts chapter 15. And after the division between Paul and Barnabas, they had kind of a falling out. Paul chose Silas, or Silvanius, to become his co-worker uh, during the second missionary journey that we are talking about. And at some point, Silvanius probably left Paul at Corinth, where he participated there in some evangelistic ministry alongside of uh, Paul and Timothy. Um, so in other words, Paul came through Corinth, he was with him, and then he stayed to kind of help that work continue on going. At some point, 1 Peter 5.12 indicates that he eventually arrived at Rome where he became Peter's secretary. So he was Paul's secretary for a while, and then he became Peter's secretary. And he was responsible for penning that letter, uh, or perhaps even for the one being the person to translate Peter's thoughts into Greek for him. Uh, according to Acts 17.4, Silvanius was one of the founders of the church in Thessalonica. So this is, this is a person who gets around in the New Testament, right? This is not just some person that we hear once and we never hear of again. If you study the New Testament, you're going to see that this is a very prominent person in the, Christian, the early Christian world. The third person was Timothy. Now, Timothy is probably a little bit more popular than Silvanius or Silas because he has, you know, a book named after him in the Bible. And so that maybe helps us to remember his name a little bit better. Um, but for those of you who don't know who Timothy was, um, he was a, a native of Lystra in Galatia. And his mother was of a Jewish background and his father had a Greek background. Uh, he was well spoken of by the believers who lived near him. And he may have come to faith through his mother or grandmother. Um, Acts 16.1 and 2 Timothy 1.5 talk about the faith of both of those women. And so he may have come to faith originally through them or possibly through Paul's preaching and, and during his first missionary journey through his homeland. And Paul considered him a spiritual son. Like, there, there is this affection for Timothy. I, I was talking to somebody the other day who... Um, had been reading through the Bible, right? Just they never really read through the whole Bible, and they were working their way through and reading through the whole Bible. And um, and I was asking them how that was going, and <laughs> she she made this comment. She was like, "You know, you're getting to know the characters whenever you read a name, and you're like, oh, Timothy, Paul's spiritual son. You know, like like you're beginning to connect with those characters, and and." In her life, she had only read bits and pieces of the Bible. She had never really read, you know, especially the New Testament, straight through. And, and so I just want to challenge you and encourage you. Um, if you've never done that before, do it. Because the characters, there's a depth 
right? I mean, it's like whenever you read any series of books uh, or watch any series of movies, every movie adds a little bit more depth to the character. And, and you get that reading through the New Testament. And some of these characters that, that we read about in history just become so much richer, right? Because we understand the connections and the relationships that they have with people. And so hopefully now whenever you read Timothy's name, you'll go, oh, Timothy, <laughs> Paul's spiritual son. He was also his fellow worker, though. He wasn't just uh, a disciple. He was a fellow worker. Um, sadly, Acts 16.1 kind of implies that his father was not a believer. And since Paul had great confidence in Timothy, he was sent on some very critical missions. Even the result of finding out what's happening in uh, Thessalonica was because he was sent to find out and to investigate, right? And, and think about that. Paul and Silas, and possibly Timothy as well, were run out of the city, and now Paul's trusting him to sneak back into the city and to find out what's happening with the church, right? So there's a lot of faith that Paul puts in Timothy. Um, he was also sent to, to tend to young churches and, and to encourage them and to exhort them. Uh, we see that all throughout Acts, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, um, his name appears as the co-author alongside of Paul in the heading of several of Paul's letters. 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Right. So, so this guy's with Paul a lot. And the narrative, Acts, or the narrative in Acts tells us that he accompanied Paul from near the beginning of the second missionary journey through the time when Paul returned to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary tour. So even though he took a little, some side trips and did some other things, he was with Paul the majority of the time. And the presence of his name in the heading of this letter, um, written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment, suggests that he accompanied Paul to the imperial city. According to First and Second Timothy, he eventually assumed the role of pastor of the Ephesian church. Uh, you see that in First Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 1 as well. Um, he also receives mention in Hebrews 13.23 13, as one who had been imprisoned right, for his faith. I mean, he wasn't just some uh, speaker who was going out and doing it. Like he, he was suffering right alongside of Paul. And these three men, they, they, they preached at Philippi, but were compelled to leave after the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. Um, they came to Thessalonica where Paul's usual practice of going to the, seminar, uh, of the synagogue, and apparently he was able to do that for three consecutive Sundays. Three consecutive Sabbaths, I should say. That would be Saturdays. Um, with some success. Now, that's, that's the who, as far as the writer, right? But whenever you're reading a book, you've also got to ask yourself the who as far as the receiver, right? You've got a sender and a receiver in any communication, and it's important that you understand both. And so really quickly, the receiver here is his converts that included some Jews, right, that, that we find out there in 1 Thessalonians, and devout, or excuse me, in Acts 17, as I read earlier, and devout Greeks, and not a few chief women. You see that in Acts 17.4. The chief success of the mission clearly laid amongst the Greek people. He didn't win a whole lot of the Jewish people, but he seems to have had a greater impact on the Greeks. And I like 
uh, I was reading through several commentaries, and one of them um, phrased it in a way that I could not rephrase. So I just want to read it to you. Um, and by the way, if I say anything smart today, I read it somewhere else. It is not from Dale Tompkins, okay? Um, but, but this specifically is not from Dale Tompkins. Uh, these people were dissatisfied with the low standards of pagan morality and with the idol worship that fostered them. They were attracted by the monotheism and the lofty morality of Judaism, right? So these, these were Greek people who were looking around the culture going, as I look at the, this world and I look at the way people are acting, they're just doing whatever they want to do and, and putting a God there to justify it, right? So that they were creating idols constantly to just satisfy their lusts. And so these, these Greek people, like even inside their hearts, they knew that like this, this isn't right. And so as they surveyed around, they found this one exception being this Jewish religion that believed in a monotheistic God, right? So we're not popping up creating more gods whenever we want to do something. There's, there's one God and they're highly moral people. And so that, that in and of itself was attractional to them because it was so countercultural. But, but there was something that repelled them from it as well. And this is important for us to hear. It says, but they were repelled by its narrow nationalism and ritual requirements. Right? The Jewish people would say, well, you can come so far in hanging out with us, but there's some places you can't go. And so they're attracted to this idea of a monotheistic, highly moral religion, but yet they were frustrated by it because they were not allowed to really pursue it to the depths in which they wanted to because they weren't from the right group of people, they weren't the right nation, and they weren't going to do some of the rituals that we're required to do because later in life, some of those rituals are really painful. Right, guys? Amen? Circumcision at three days old versus 30 years old is two different things. Right? So, so they, were, they were limited. So there was this frustration. But in Christianity, they found a faith that satisfied both their desire for a monotheistic moral religion and yet there was not this limitation of nationalism because every tribe and tongue were invited to join right there weren't these narrow ritual requirements because Jesus fulfilled all of those and so now the door is open for us you see there's there's an old saying that we we say this all the time it's not what you know but who you know right you're trying to get a job and you're constantly frustrated because somebody who knows way less than you gets the job that you want. Why? Because they know the boss or the boss's son or something, right? And, and I think about that. And as, as you read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was what you knew, right? As, as, a, as a Jewish person, it was what you knew and what you did. In the New Testament, it's all about who you know. Jesus has fulfilled all the things that we had to do. And now, as a new believer in this Christian movement, it's about who do you know? Because out of him, we are 
His righteousness is imputed to us. His holiness is imputed to us. It's no longer about me going and trying to do all these things to be holy. It's me receiving his holiness. Now, don't mishear me. Receiving that's going to make me live differently, just like I talked about last week. Mercy received is going to be mercy demonstrated. So when you receive that holiness from him and you realize it's no longer about I have to do all these things and check all these boxes, man, that's going to make you live for him, right? So it's not going to create this loosey-goosey kind of do-whatever-I-want-to-do morality. No, it's going to draw you even closer to the heart of God, but not because of what you have to do, but now because of what you want to do. Because of what's been given to you freely. Man, you you can see why this would be attractional to these Greek residents who, who, who felt like they were coming up to the door of something, but the door kept getting shut in their face. And here comes Jesus saying, I'm the door. Anybody who comes, comes through me, right? And some of, the, some of the converts came from high-class families. There's these prominent women that's mentioned, but it's probable that most of them were from lower classes. The reason for that is in, seen in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, where Paul stresses his refusal to be dependent on them in, in any way. And his letters to them contain no warning about the dangers of riches. So again, there may, be, it may have been a few prominent people, but there was probably a lot of just average people that lived in the city that he's addressing. Now, it's interesting the term that he uses here of, of ecclesia um, that, that you may have heard before if you've been in or around church services. Um, and in, it's, in the LXX, it's, it's a term that's translated um, from the Hebrew kahal, and, and that designated the assembly of Yahweh. Now, ecclesia was just an assembly, Okay, there's nothing spiritual about that word in the Greek. Anytime the people of the city would come together and have a meeting, that was an ecclesia, right? It was, it was a gathering of the people to make a decision about something in the city, whether that's to elect or appoint a leader, make a decision about something. Ecclesia is just a word that means gathering in the Greek. There's nothing particularly religious about the word in the Greek. But, but we can see very early on there's this idea that, that it's connected with the Old Testament word of kahal, which is the assembly of God, right? And this is, this is something different. And for this reason, Stephen, for instance, uses the word ecclesia to refer to the people of Israel during the wilderness wanderings in Acts 7.38. So Stephen's looking back into the Old Testament, and he's saying that this this group of people that were wandering in the wilderness, this was an assembly of God. This was an ecclesia of God. Most certainly the Christian's use of this term of self-identity finds its deepest roots in, in this kind of soil. Now, ecclesia, from a religious standpoint or as an assembly of God, can, can be used three ways. And again, this is, I know some of this stuff, you go, Dale, who cares? Trust me, as we unpack this, it's going to be important. Um, but ecclesia could refer to the totality of the Christian community in a city, right? So when Paul writes to the church at Thessalonians, right, 
he could be saying all of the Christians that are in this city. You are all part of the assembly. In other words, if I were to say to the churches of Lake City, would that just be our church? No, that would be all of the churches that are gathered and who worship God the way God calls us to worship Him, right? You see that use in Romans 16, 23 and 1 Corinthians 1, 2. But then sometimes the word ecclesia is used to address the basic cell group that met in the house of one of the members. Okay, So this would be more of what we would say is this church body. right? Because again, I think sometimes we read the Bible and we, we take our thoughts and we just push it back into the scripture. right? And so what you, what you do on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Sunday night is more akin to the way a church would have looked in the Bible, in the New Testament. These were small groups of 10 to 25 people, depending on how rich the person was, the house that you were meeting in, you know, how, how much space that person had, depended on the size of that gathering of that church. So that's another way the word ecclesia could be used. It could be just a narrow group of people gathered in one place. Again, in, in our context, that's more of us this morning. We're, we're gathered here. And then a couple of times, and this is more of a rare occasion, it would designate the totality of Christian community in every, uh, any and every place. So you see that in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Colossians 1, 18, where the ecclesia of God is the gathered people from the entire world. Okay, So there's these three kinds of ecclesias that we see in the New Testament. And calling the Christians in Thessalonica, a church shows their continuity with the ancient people of God, right? So remember, these Greek people, they wanted, they wanted to go farther in Judaism, but they were denied. And what Paul is saying, by, by calling them the ecclesia of God, the assembly of God, he's saying, you are now a part of that. What, what once was limited to you is now fully available, to you, right? So, so there's this, this drawing in, and it, and it gives them an, an alternate social identity, if you will, that, that we are now the people of God. But it also stands as a challenge, and we're going to see this as we study the books of First and Second Thessalonians. It stands as a challenge to the existing structure of power whose God is another, right? So, so we're, we're, we are set apart, and we don't worship Caesar, right? That, that's what they would have been doing as a Roman-occupied place. There, there's a, a worship of Caesar as God. And Paul is saying, you no longer are worshiping him. You, you're worshiping someone much, much higher. All right, so that's the, the who. Now the what. Paul, and I... I wish I could have been there for these three weeks. You ever, you ever, man, you ever think about that sometimes when you're reading the Bible and you think, what exactly did he say? Right? Because whatever he said in three weeks, God used to plant and grow a church. I'm going to be honest with you. Ten years into Church on the Way, I wasn't sure if Church on the Way was going to live or die. 
I just wasn't sure. And I had 10 years of investing in people. Paul, in three weeks, goes and preaches, and a church plants, and not only plants, but grows in the midst of persecution. We have it pretty easy compared to what they're going through, right? I wish I, wish I knew what he said in those three weeks. But whatever he said, apparently it was something that addressed every aspect of life, making sure that from the beginning they would learn of the need to examine and change every aspect of their lives. And this letter seeks to, to clarify some of those teachings they received in the short time Paul was with them. And, and some of the things that Paul is going to teach us in 1 Thessalonians is, is directly addressed, but then there's a lot of things that are indirectly reinforced. And so whenever Paul's writing any letter, there's typically a main reason, if you will, like he's addressing some problems in the church or he's encouraging Timothy to do certain things directly. But never forget that there are also indirect things that he is reinforcing because of the phrasing that he is using, that the words that he uses help to reinforce something that he's already taught. So let me start by giving you a couple examples of the indirect things that I see here, and then we'll conclude with the direct things that he addresses. I think the biggest thing indirectly we see from 1 Thessalonians is how these three authors are affirming the Trinitarian view of God. I'm going to take a, just a quick survey, and again, this is where we're going to get some rapid-fire references. Um, let's look at each person of the Trinity really quickly. One, God. We see in 1 Thessalonians that he is uh, the living and true God in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, to whom the former pagans turned in faith from their idolatry. He's the God of Israel, who had been referred to by his Jewish worshipers in the same terms. Again, Paul's trying to connect them uh, from Judaism to Christianity. But he's also God the Father, you see in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Our God and Father, in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Not only because he is the father of his children, but because he is primarily the father of Jesus Christ, his son, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And therefore, also the father of all those who are believers in Christ. God has chosen his people, 1 Thessalonians 1.4. He's the object of their faith, 1 Thessalonians 1.8. He bestows the authority underlying the apostles' bold confidence in 1 Thessalonians 2 2. It's he who has entrusted them with the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 2 4. It is God's pleasure that they seek and, and, and witness that <clears throat> and his witness that they invoke the purity of their motives and conduct in 1 Thessalonians 2 5 through 10. It's his guidance that must be followed, 1 Thessalonians 3 1 or 3 11. His will that must be obeyed, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 and 5.18. He has called his people to lead holy lives, 1 Thessalonians 4.7. And he's able to bring it to consumption, the holiness to which he has called them, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. It's he who raised up Jesus from the dead, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And will with him bring back his people from the dead, 1 Thessalonians 4.14 thus finally accomplishing the salvation to which he has appointed them in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. 
All throughout the book, you are going to be reading and learning indirectly about who God is and what God has done. But in addition to that, we're going to learn about who Jesus is and who the Christ is. And there's a spontaneous and repeated association with Christ, with God, in these letters. Bearing witness to the exalted place that that he has next to God. In the thought and worship of early Christians. So as early Christians lived their lives, right? They're seeing God and Jesus side by side. The church has its beginnings in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. When guidance is sought for our writers of spiritual help for the readers, the prayer is directed to our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 3.11. If the Father is God, the Son is Lord, and, and much that it's said of God can be said equally, equally well of the Lord. Right? If believers are loved by God in 1 4, they are loved by Jesus, the Son of God, in 1 Thessalonians 1 9. His word carries unsurpassed authority, 1 Thessalonians 4 15. He died for us in order that we might live together with him, 1 Thessalonians 5 10. He was raised from the dead by God and is at present with him in heaven, from which his people wait for him to come as their deliverer, in 1 Thessalonians 1 10. His coming, at which the dead in Christ will rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, will bring relief and glory to his people and final judgment to the ungodly, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. This is in keeping with the portrayal as, as judge of the living and the dead that we see in Acts chapter 10.42. So all throughout this book, again, we're going to see Jesus being sandwiched right next to God. Helping us to understand that that there is a view, clearly, that Jesus is God. Thirdly, we're going to see the Spirit's work. Now, the Spirit is is all-pervasive in the Christian life, which, without the Spirit, there is no Christian life. Amen? If the Spirit is not empowering you and changing you and transforming you, there is no Christian life. There is just morality at best. So it's by his power that the gospel is proclaimed effectively. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 Not only is his joy imparted to those who believe it, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, but he himself is given to them as the Holy Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 4.8 to perform his sanctifying work in their lives in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We'll see that later. In church life, we are told not to quench the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. So again, Paul is, is helping us and these writers are helping us to understand the importance of a Trinitarian view of God, a Trinitarian doctrine of God. Now Paul directly targets, that's, that's what we can learn indirectly, but directly Paul is going to target two things that we're going to talk a lot about, so I'm going to be really quick on these, as some of you might want me to go into a little bit more depth on one of them. The first is eschatology. Now, eschatology is just a fancy word that we use in church that means what you believe about the end times. Okay, you want to go impress your coworkers next week? Go, go. What's your eschatology? <laughs> right? No, it, it's just what we believe about the end times. And early Christian eschatology is closely related to the pattern of expectation 
wildly or widely held amongst the Jews at the time. So you can imagine, if you've ever studied the topic of eschatology, and I've studied it a lot, there's no way you're going to learn everything in three weeks. I don't care if an apostle's teaching you. You're not going to learn everything in three weeks. right? So there was some holes, there was some gaps in what they understood about eschatology. So one of the things that Paul is going to do in this letter that we're going to see over and over again is he's going to be addressing their views about end times and their views about eschatology. Okay? Um, again, there, there was this kind of understanding from a Jewish perspective that um, the way the end times would work would be there is this time of lawlessness and then the Messiah would come, and then there would be a new age, right? So for them, it was two distinct ages. And, and that kind of rolled itself into the church, because again, this is what the Jewish mindset, the Jewish Christians would have grown up believing and understanding. But there was a, a slight modification when it came to the Christian view of eschatology or the end days. See, for a Christian, the, the, the pattern underwent a crucial change. So instead of there being an age of lawlessness and then the age of the Messiah, right? There, there was the, the fact, as a Christian, that they believed that the Messiah had come in the person of Jesus. And therefore, the days of the Messiah had begun because Jesus had, been, had died and been raised from the dead. So in him, you would find the, the first part of the resurrection had already taken place. It, the age to come, the resurrection age, thus had invaded this current age. And this age was on its way out, but it had not yet fully disappeared. While the new age had broken in, it was not fully manifested. You will hear me and other leaders of our church typically talk about this as the already and the not yet. As you study the New Testament, you're going to see this idea of the already and the not yet over and over and over. You are already a citizen of heaven, right? That's what Paul tells us we are. It doesn't always feel like it, though, does it? Because we live in the not yet. We, we still live in that phase where it is not fully completed. So rather than it being this hard shift and this is the age of lawlessness, this is the age of Messiah, as believers we understand that this is the age of lawlessness and there is this overlap between it and the age of the Messiah. So it is already in the sense that Jesus has come and he has died for us, but there is the not yet. We have not fully realized that. We still live in a sinful world with sinful people. Right? Christ is not ruling and reigning and putting aside and putting all evil under his feet yet. We don't live there yet, but we will. Right? That is the hope of every believer, is that we will one day. And so this, as you can imagine, was causing some confusion. Right? Because if you think the age to come is here, you might be tempted to do some things, right? Many of you probably remember this, but we had a group in Lake City that I, I think they were maybe connected with even a bigger group that thought the world was going to end on a certain day. 
what did they do? They sold all their stuff and they stopped working because, hey, the end is coming, right? If, if we all knew the end was coming at the end of this year and we all had $200,000 of equity in our house, what would we probably do? Sell the house, take the equity, and live like a king for the next eight months, nine months, ten months, right? Because we know the end of the world's coming. What is the point of trying to gather more stuff and build more storehouses? It's all going to burn up anyway. You see why eschatology is important? Like What you understand and what you think about the end of the world affects how you live every day, right? For some of you, that may be why you've buried containers in your backyard, right? Your understanding of last days can affect a lot of things. You got a bunch of MREs stockpiled, right? What, what you think about end times affects how you spend your money and how you live your life. Same thing's true for the Thessalonian church, right? They got three weeks of training. <laughs> That's it. I mean, we've got our whole Bible. They didn't have that, folks, right? They had three weeks. So as you can imagine, they, they started thinking some squirrely things about end times. And so Paul's going to address that. He's going to focus them and help them to see how to live their lives. And the second thing, which I think directly correlates with the eschatology, is he's going to tackle that of Christian living, right? So how should we live? How should we act as believers in a society? Christ's, uh, Christians manifest the new life which the gospel has brought them by spreading the gospel abroad. So one of the things that he's going to show us in 1 Thessalonians 1.8 is, is by sharing the gospel. This is part of Christian living, is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. But not only that, their lives should be consistent with the gospel. So in other words, you're sharing a gospel, and the life that you're, you're living should line up with what you're saying. See that in 1 Corinthians 1.3. Some particular aspects of Christian ethics are going to be discussed. Um, endurance under trials. You see that in 1 Thessalonians 2.14. We're going to see it again in 2 Thessalonians 1.4. Love for one another. You see that in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. You're going to see it again in 2 Thessalonians 1.3. Self-control, especially when it comes to sexual uh, matters. 1 Thessalonians 4.3-8. through 8. Honesty in everyday living, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, and you see it again in 2 Thessalonians 3.6-13. And doing good to all, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. So these are, these are some of the direct things. Eschatology and how we are to live the Christian life. The next question, who, what, when? So when. Paul arrives in Corinth uh, the early part of 80, uh, 50 A.D., and that's pretty much when he writes the letter is soon after that. Most theologians and commentators agree it's somewhere around 51, 52. There's some outliers on either side, but the majority of people kind of agree around that 51, 52 A.D. time period. Um, one thing is clear, that the letters to the Thessalonians are among the earliest of our New Testament documents. These are some of the, the Galatians may have been written earlier. There's some debate about that. But no other of Paul's letters would have been written before the Thessalonians and Galatians. And the Thessalonian letters, just so you understand, 
They would have been written about 20 years after Christ died. 20 years, right? Because there's, there's, there's scholars and there's people out there in the secular world that want to argue all this stuff about Jesus. It was made up hundreds and thousands of years after Jesus. The, the archaeology records, the, the, the best research that we have says this, we're talking 20 years after Jesus died is when Paul wrote this letter, okay? Again, important for us to understand that. Where? Well, Thessalonica is, uh, in the first century, it was the capital of Macedonia, and it was the largest city. This is something you would see Paul often doing. He liked to go to cities. He especially liked to go to cities in which there was some kind of travel going through that city, right? So he would have loved Lake City. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he would have liked the interstate system in Lake City, Right? A lot of things come and go through here. But, but he would try to find a densely populated area in which there were lots of traders. Why? Well, if you share the gospel with a merchant and the merchant accepts Christ, the merchant doesn't just sit there in his neighborhood telling people about Christ, which in and of itself is a great thing. Don't get me wrong. But see, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is, is thinking much bigger than that. If that merchant comes to Christ and then that merchant travels to 13 cities over the next year, guess what happens? He's sharing the gospel in 13 different places, right? So Paul's looking for areas like this. And, and Thessalonica uh, was situated on the, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but the, the Via Ignatia. And this was a great Roman highway to the east, and so this, you know, this is a perfect place for Paul to go and share the gospel because people are just constantly coming and going through this city. And it's geographically important can be seen because it's still an important city to this very day. Right? So, so Paul's in a place that, that's very important. It's a capital city. Um, it was founded back in 315 B.C. Uh, for those of you who are history buffs, it was founded by um, Cassiander for, it was named after his wife, Thessalonica. So if you're, you guys are having a little girl and you're looking for a name for your little girl that's biblical, here you go. Um, she was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Um, under the Romans, it was the capital, um, again, of, of this province of Macedonia. It was the, the largest city. But it was also, and this is important as we go through and and, and Study First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. It was a free city, so this is this is something um, different. It was it was ruled by locals, right? So the ecclesia would come together. The men of the city, I didn't say that earlier. Typically, ecclesias were the men of the city. They would come together and appoint a ruler or rulers over certain things, much in the way we do today, right? We we come together on voting day and we vote in different people. This was a free city. It wasn't, there wasn't a governor that was placed over it, and it was just a hard Roman rule. This was a free Greek city in which they would rule. Now, they were under the Roman authority, but for the most part, they had a lot of leniency. All right, who, what, when, where, and finally, why? Up until this point, Paul had very little to encourage him in ministry. In four successive cities, he had preached the gospel and been run out of town. 
Talk about discouraging, right? It's your first missionary journey. You feel as though God has called you to take the gospel to the world. You go take the gospel to the world, and the world shows you the door. Right? I mean, and, and that's like you had to be, they had to sneak you out of the city so that you didn't get killed. Right? So this is, this has got to be pretty discouraging for Paul. This, this is a time in his ministry in which, you know, it, it, it's, you see it in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 when he writes of his preaching in Corinth was in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Because he's doing what God tells him to do, but he's not seeing a huge result. I'm not saying there's not some people coming to Christ, but, but I'm sure, as most of us do, we have this idea, if God tells us to do something, right, the sea is going to part, and the rain is going to stop, and the sun is going to shine, and man, everything is going to go our way. But that's not what happens, right? That's not what happens for Paul. What would you do if you were in his shoes? Would you just give up and say, well, I guess, I guess this wasn't meant to be. I guess this wasn't what God wanted me to do. Life is full of disappointments. Life's full of setbacks, right? And the question is, what do we do next? Now, for Paul, that was continuing to do what he was called to do. Why? Well, one of the reasons why we're going to see in this letter. I think we find the answer to that question of why when Timothy comes back from Thessalonica and he brings his good report of the continuing steadfastness of these new believers. Paul saw that his work wasn't in vain. Paul realized that he had faithfully planted and watered. And because of God's blessing, it brought fruit in their life. See, sometimes we forget that it's not our responsibility to bring fruit in people's lives. We, our job is to plant and water. God gives the increase. God is the one that bears the, the Holy Spirit. Those are fruits of the Spirit, not fruits of Dale or you. They're fruits of the Spirit. It's our job to plant and to water. And to plant and to water. And after only three weeks of planting and watering on his part, Paul's spirit rose and he gave himself much more energetically to preaching. This appears to be the meaning in Acts 18.5. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Out of a sense of relief and reassurance, Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians. Have you ever considered this morning that your growth and your faith in Jesus would generate hope in your leaders' lives? Have you ever thought about that? Your small group leader that opens up their house to be destroyed week in and week out, All that's made worth it when they see you growing in your faith. 
man, I want to encourage you to share it. When you see and feel God has worked, share that with them. It's, it's such an encouragement to continue on because I'm going to be honest with you. If you've done this, if you've led people for very long, if you've discipled people for very long, it can be discouraging. Because often it feels like one step forward, two steps back. And whenever you do take that one step forward, it, it, it's encouraging. Let them know that. Because see, this is exactly what happened to Paul. The news from the Thessalonians gave Paul hope. Hence, I believe the overarching theme of this letter. The overarching theme of 1 Thessalonians is one of hope. It's the dominant theme we see. And the reality is this morning, it's one we all need to hear, right? Without hope, we will give up when things get tough. Now, I want to remind you, when the Bible, what the Bible doesn't mean when we say hope is hope so. Right? That's not what the Bible means. Instead, the Bible means an anticipation of something certain that God will do but hasn't done yet. There is a certainty about our hope. Why? Because hope depends on the promises of God. And that's why it's energizing. Because God doesn't go back on his promises. If we learn nothing else from this letter over the next couple months, I hope we will learn something about how to use God's word to instill hope in our lives. And how to use God's word to instill hope in the lives of those around us who are discouraged and despairing. And let me tell you, folks, we are living in a time of so much despair and discouragement. People need the gospel now more than ever. I, I, I try to just read headlines of the news because I, I it's depressing watching the news. But, but I, you know, people ask me questions, so I feel like I have to stay up to date to a certain degree. And it's just sad to see the state of our world. J just recently in Marion County, two firefighters gave up. Like we, we live in some strange times. Strange times. Primarily marked by a hopelessness. And yet we have the greatest hope in the world. I, I hope that you will learn how to take the hope that we see here in God's word to the people who are discouraged and despairing around you. I also want you to notice that Paul is pleased with the progress of the Thessalonian church. Right? He, he's excited. <laughs> I was there for three weeks and you guys are still going. <laughs> this, is, this is amazing, even amongst persecution. Despite all that, that you've done and gone so far. And what we're going to see may surprise some of you. Because Paul is going to spend a great deal of time being thankful for them in this letter. 
He's thankful for how far they've come. But then he does something interesting. He encourages them to do better. In other words, now, now that things have started, Paul's like, look, I'm so thankful for this. I'm so excited about this. But Paul's like, now we need to push even harder. And obviously that, that should be our policy as Christians. When we see our, our brothers and sisters advancing in their faith, we should commend them. We should praise and give thanks to God for that. But we should never allow them to settle back and go, okay, well now you're good enough. Once you have that same momentum, encourage them to keep it going. That advice is echoed when he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 8, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. You're doing great, guys. You survived. Now let's go. Let, let, let's push even harder to take the word of God even farther. And the last thing we see in verse 1 here, grace and peace, or grace to you and peace. And guys, this morning, grace and peace are precisely what we need as a church. Every one of us in this church needs grace and peace. It's what this world needs. The, the believer cannot live the Christian life without grace. And here grace means the assistance or help from the Spirit of God, the Spirit that God provides to know and to do His will. And because sin creates so many problems both uh, within us and without us, peace is equally needed. Some of you are here this morning and you are so, you struggle so much with your own thoughts. And you just need peace from that. You need peace from all those voices in your head saying, you're not good enough. You're a failure. What's wrong with you? Why did you think that? Right? Sin has caused a problem within. Our, our brains are broken. But sin also causes a problem without. There are People who are sinful, doing everything they can do to make us not feel peace, right? Including floating balloons over our country, right? Whatever we can do to just keep you off balance just a little bit, right? We, we need God's peace now more than ever. Perhaps no Two items are needed more than grace and peace this morning. But we will receive peace only when we avail ourselves to the grace that is given. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you cannot live at peace. You just can't. Because your ultimate future hangs in the balance. And, and you have no certainty of what that future will be apart from Jesus Christ.
but with him. With him, all the things necessary to life and godliness are provided to you through his Holy Spirit. They're ours for the taking this morning. They're yours for the taking this morning. We should never complain about a lack of help or direction or peace if we fail to avail ourselves of it. Neither the Father nor the Son nor the Spirit may be blamed. It is only our fault. He he is extending it and giving it freely this morning. And he wants you to have it. Because as we enter into this time and this season as Americans, I'm not a pessimistic person. I'm actually in somewhat encouraged by persecution because in my experience, the church grows during persecution. But, but we're entering a season, we've entered a season, in which persecution is probably just going to increase. And without the hope and peace of God, without His grace, we're not going to make it, guys. And we need to cling to Him and His Word now more than ever. And we're going to see, when we do, we have a great hope that can allow us to grow and change. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And I pray all of this information this morning will be transformed into our minds. God, in in the next few weeks and months, Lord, as, as we unpack your word. And God, we will we will begin to grow even deeper in our relationship with you and with others, Lord. And I pray this morning for those that are here that don't know you, that don't have this hope, Lord, that this morning would be the morning that they would put their faith and trust in you. They, they would avail themselves of this grace that you give freely and their lives would be changed. And Lord, there's, I'm sure, people who are discouraged this morning. Maybe they've been discipling some people or teaching in the kids' room and and they just, they just don't feel like they see that change that they, they hope for, Lord. And Father, I, just, I, I pray that you would have people come into their life and speak to them and encourage them and help them to see how you are, are giving an increase to the faithful planting and watering that they are doing. Whether they're small group leaders or work in the cafe or, or lead media teams, or or wherever they work, Lord, to serve you, God, that, that they would see a positive result of your faithfulness to their faithfulness. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. As you continue to pray, we're going to